Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 55, Alan Trammell, Precedent and Preclusion. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Alan Trammell. Alan is Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Arkansas School of Law, where his teaching and research interests are in civil procedure, federal courts, and conflicts of law. Our podcast today features Alan's new article, Precedent and Preclusion, which was published in the Notre Dame Law Review. In it, Alan explores two doctrines that you might not ordinarily examine together, issue preclusion and the rules governing precedent. But if you think about it, the two doctrines are effectively asking the same thing. What is the effect of a prior ruling or determination of an issue? Or from an evidentiary perspective, when is a prior determination permissible as a method of proof in the current litigation? At stake is nothing less than some of our most cherished due process values, and often in some pretty high-stakes cases like class action certification. Whether you agree with him or not, Alan's discussion is sure to make you think. Alan, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you very much, Ad. You set up a really interesting juxtaposition in your paper between preclusion, and here specifically it's issue preclusion, and precedent. And as you talk about in the paper, the two of them are often viewed to be completely different doctrines, but to your mind, they really effectively address the same issue. Tell us why we should think about them in conjunction. Precedent and preclusion certainly can address the same sets of questions today in a way that maybe two generations ago we didn't think that they would. Preclusion tends to be focused, at least in the traditional telling, on fact-intensive inquiries applying just to matters that the parties have litigated between them. Precedent we tend to think of as governing large legal questions, questions that are going to affect society quite broadly. As it turns out, Precedent is now governing some pretty fact-intensive inquiries. Uh, the paper goes through a few examples of that, but I think the more remarkable development is that preclusion is no longer applying just to intensive factual inquiries, that it's governing mixed questions of law and fact, and it's even applying to pure questions of law. And so you see that in a number of instances, courts are saying, well, we can't address this through the lens of preclusion. Preclusion is going to apply only to people who have had their day in court, but we can apply precedent to govern the exact same inquiry. So what you're saying is effectively this law-fact distinction, which traditionally broke up precedent and preclusion, has collapsed. And in your article, you have a bunch of examples for why it collapsed. Can you share a couple of these examples with us? Sure. I think that on the preclusion side, it's pretty evident what has been going on. A lot of courts started to say in the 1960s and 1970s that it was becoming increasingly difficult to differentiate between something that was a purely factual question as opposed to a mixed question of law and fact or even the application of law to facts. And they said, 
And you know what? The game isn't even worth the candle because the whole purpose of preclusion is that if you have had a full and fair opportunity to litigate a matter, then you should be prevented from relitigating that matter in a subsequent lawsuit. And that's going to be true regardless of how we formally denominate the nature of this question, whether factual, legal, or somewhere in between. So I think that that was a very sensible development. Another one about the same time, that is to say in the 1960s and the 1970s, is that courts began to experiment with expanding preclusion. That is to say that they were recognizing that you didn't necessarily need to have mutuality of parties. Again, if you had a full and fair opportunity to litigate a matter, then you could be prevented from relitigating that matter in a subsequent lawsuit, even if the person invoking it against you hadn't participated in the first lawsuit. So it's that expansion of preclusion that's really doing a whole lot of work. I would say that on the precedent side, again, it's a little bit more surreptitious, but a couple of scholars have been documenting this in, I would say, the last 15 years, namely a phenomenon whereby precedent has become a whole lot less flexible than it used to be. The idea that, for instance, federal courts of appeals abide by a rule of absolute stare decisis, that lower courts are absolutely bound by their higher courts. And as a result, we see precedent somewhat ossifying. It's becoming as rigid as preclusion is. We have two doctrines dealing with effectively the same kinds of issues, and they're, they're crossing over in funny ways, but yet they operate entirely differently. Remind us how they operate differently and why effectively they're going to come out in different ways depending on the context. Preclusion is very much rooted in this idea that each person is entitled to his or her own day in court. That ideal gets invoked pretty frequently whenever the Supreme Court and when lower courts talk about concepts of preclusion. So it's it's a very blunt instrument. It prevents you from being able to make arguments in a subsequent lawsuit, but again, predicated on the idea that you already had a fair shot to litigate that particular question. So that's preclusion. Now on the precedent side, We don't have this idea of a day in court ideal. In fact, it's anathema to an Anglo-American world where precedent does so much work, and in particular where we have lower courts that are all but absolutely bound by the precedents of higher courts. So even if I litigate a particular legal question, say the proper interpretation of a statute, you aren't going to be able to come along in a subsequent lawsuit and say, well, wait, I disagree with that legal interpretation, and you should allow me to relitigate it because I did not participate in that first lawsuit that Alan participated in. So that's a long way of saying that the day in court ideal is a very strong presumption on the preclusion side, but it has almost no application on the precedent side. And again, that made a whole lot of sense when these were almost hermetically sealed categories, that preclusion applied to fact-intensive inquiries and that precedent was governing large legal questions and was operating with at least a modicum of flexibility. A nice example of how they converge is in one of the motivating examples in the paper, Taylor versus Sturgill, question of a FOIA request. And one person wanted a particular document, namely plans for a vintage aircraft, litigated the matter and lost. His friend came along, tried to get the exact same document. And the Supreme Court said, well, it's true that preclusion can't attach to the second person because he had not participated in the first lawsuit. But If this comes up within the same circuit, then stare decisis can easily take care of the problem. So far, the distinction you're making is about mutuality or this day in court principle. But there are a couple of other differences between the way the two doctrines work as well. 
And just to get those on the table, one is a timing issue. You talk about how precedent effectively, because it's the law, you can raise those kinds of claims at any point, whereas preclusion is waived if not raised. And then there are funny scope issues as well, right? That precedent, as we know, is confined to certain circuits or it depends on where the precedent is coming from. But there are these various restrictions on where you can use precedent, at least binding precedent. Whereas preclusion, we don't care. It doesn't matter where you litigated it. We're still going to impose the preclusive effect. That's absolutely right. I've said that one might think about preclusion as an even more powerful tool than binding precedent because preclusion can reach far beyond the jurisdictional confines of a court. So if you litigate a particular matter and it is resolved adversely to you, then that finding is going to bind you not just in that jurisdiction where you initially litigated, but anywhere else in the entire United States where you try to raise that same issue again. It's also going to move in a direction that we don't normally think about, at least when we're thinking about precedent. That is to say that a lower court finding could even bind a higher court in subsequent litigation. So if you don't appeal that adverse finding from the first litigation, then a higher court in subsequent litigation might say, and in fact under preclusion would be bound to say, we are not allowing you to revisit this. So that's why I say that preclusion might be a more powerful tool than precedent. And I, I like those distinctions that you've laid out in terms of how they traditionally operate, but even those have started to break down. So it used to be that preclusion was regarded exclusively as an affirmative defense that you would have to raise in your answer to a complaint. And if you didn't raise it there, then you waived it. But a number of courts, including the DC Circuit relatively recently, have said, well, Preclusion implicates a whole lot of institutional concerns the same way the precedent does, including efficiency, judicial economy, and the like. And so at least under certain circumstances, courts can raise preclusion issues on their own motion. They're not confining the raising of a preclusion defense simply to an answer to the complaint. Uh, it can be raised in a whole number of other ways. So as I say, this is another way where you see the convergence of precedent and preclusion. Your proposal tries to make this more coherent, but before we get there, one thing that strikes me from this conversation is that this might be a tactical decision for a litigator today, that you effectively have the choice of arguing preclusion versus precedent. Is that true? That because there's all this mixing at this point, that you should be very careful about which one you choose and maybe it may turn out that courts have the option of choosing one versus another in various contexts. Yes and no is the short answer to the question. It is not going to be the case that you could simply choose between them if you are not in a jurisdiction where binding precedent is going to apply. So in the Taylor versus Sturgill case, you had the first litigation occurring in the 10th Circuit. You had the subsequent litigation occurring in the DC Circuit. So that was, in fact, a very wise strategic choice on the part of the second litigant, namely to be in a place where binding precedent wasn't going to apply. But if you do wind up in a jurisdiction where there is binding precedent, then yes, it's very, very important to argue that if you are the person trying to invoke the earlier precedent that you're not using preclusion, that you are in fact using precedent. And it's kind of odd when you have 
courts that will say, well, preclusion absolutely cannot apply in this situation. The prison didn't have his or her day in court, so on and so forth. And then they turn right around and say, but we can dispose of this through binding precedent. Yeah. And in fact, in your your example itself, the choice of the D.C. Circuit versus the Tenth Circuit was, in fact, a tactical decision to avoid the precedential problem, knowing that the preclusion wasn't going to attach either. Exactly. Exactly. Well, the difficulty in the D.C. Circuit was that the lower court, that well, the, the DDC as well as the DC circuit itself said, we recognize that there is no binding precedent because the earlier precedent came from the 10th circuit, but they were trying to find a way to apply preclusion and in fact, non-party preclusion. But then the Supreme Court unanimously said, non-party preclusion is going to be available in only a, a discrete number of circumstances. And this is not one of them. Are there other practical concerns that are driving this paper? So you talk a bit about serial litigation in these mass tort type contexts. Mm -hmm. Is that what's driving your decision to really look at this and create some kind of coherent story? Obviously, creating some kind of legal coherence is always important, but I'm trying to figure out what the practical motivation is here. I think that there are a number of practical implications. One is, indeed, when you're dealing with serial litigation, Let's say that you are not in a jurisdiction where there's going to be binding precedent, but yet you want to try to invoke some form of preclusion. And again, it gets difficult when it's non-party preclusion, when you're trying to apply it against somebody who had not participated in the first lawsuit. Serial litigation can come up in a number of contexts. One of the easiest examples to think about is probably class certification. Lawyers and class members try to get certification in one jurisdiction. It's denied. Well, they just go to another jurisdiction and they say, well, there's no binding precedent in this new jurisdiction. Moreover, preclusion can't apply except with respect to the named plaintiffs. And so they essentially shop around from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And this isn't just a theoretical problem. We've seen this in a number of contexts. It also comes up in the public rights context. The, the FOIA example from Taylor versus Sturgill is one really concrete manifestation of that. So there are real world consequences to this choice. And a number of scholars and courts have talked about ways to try to combat these ills of serial litigation, but most of them wind up being either imperfect or infeasible under current doctrine. And I think that one of the most direct ways to address it is by expanding the reach of non-party preclusion. And when we look at how precedent in a number of contexts can accomplish the exact same thing, it's curious to me that we have such a stringent approach to non-party preclusion. You've anticipated my, my next question. <laughs> so let's get to your proposal. Sure. How are you going to make these doctrines cohere or how are you going to make this less of a mess than it is now? There are a number of ways that one could go about this. One of the first people to write about this phenomenon, this convergence of precedent and preclusion over the last generation or so, was Amy Coney Barrett, who's now on the Seventh Circuit. And she essentially said the way to go about this is to restore at least a modicum of flexibility to precedent so that it is not as binding and to try to make sure that it is not going to deprive people of a day in court, particularly with respect to matters that are fact intensive. So that's one proposal that I call leveling up. There's another which would say we should just go back to the traditional conceptualization, that we should confine preclusion to its sphere and we should confine precedent to its own sphere. 
But as I was saying at the start of the conversation, they've become almost inextricably intertwined. I mean, it's very, very difficult to parse the difference between a mixed question of law and fact and application of law to facts versus purely factual or purely legal questions. So the third approach, namely the one that I advocate, is what I call leveling down, which is to recognize that the day in court ideal is actually quite anomalous in most areas of civil procedure. When there's a clash between autonomy, somebody's ability to control the outcome of or or the, the, the manner of litigating a particular case, when that's essentially clashing with values of efficiency and accuracy, we are almost always going to privilege the concerns for efficiency and accuracy to the detriment of individual autonomy. So that's all by way of saying that we shouldn't blow up the notion of a day in court ideal, but we shouldn't slavishly adhere to it when there are good reasons to think that efficiency and autonomy, or excuse me, that efficiency and accuracy are well served by precluding somebody from relitigating a matter, then it makes sense to do so. And you might think of the class certification denials as a good example of that. Maybe the second time around, we don't necessarily say, well, you had one shot to litigate this and therefore you're never allowed to do it again. But by the time we're on the fourth, fifth and sixth attempts, perhaps it's a good idea to say, you haven't had just one shot at this. You've had four or five shots at this and you've lost every single time. This is a good situation where we're going to preclude you from relitigating that matter. Now, the key, though, is it's not you, though, right? Because this is not the party. It is you writ large or your group or people who are advocating the same thing have had multiple shots at this. Is that right? That's correct. Now, in the class certification context, it gets a little bit dicey because the U is a putative class. Now, because the class hasn't been certified, it's not technically the people who have litigated the question, but it's the same group of people who are trying to persuade a court that they cohere in a way that makes sense to litigate together. So it is true that the U is not the person who has actually litigated the matter, but somebody who is adopting a similar argument or a similar approach. Let me see if I can characterize your position, and you tell me whether I've got this right. It seems to me that what you're advocating for is a call to what you might call epistemic deference, that it's efficient for one court to assume in good faith that another court is going to reach the right result. And if many courts have reached the same result, then you should simply go along with the other courts. That's both, you know, in your words, efficient because you don't have to relitigate the case. And it's potentially more accurate because once you have this body of case law that is arriving at the same conclusion, chances are pretty good that it's right, or at least it's quote unquote right within the context that we're talking about. Or in some ways, when I'm very, very candid about it, it's right enough for due process purposes. Right, right. But I think that that's absolutely a correct way to summarize my position on this. Let me make an extension of your idea to evidence law, and you tell me whether this seems to make sense as well. Expert evidence rulings are typically reviewed for abuse of discretion, which really is similar to a issue preclusion regime, I think, because non-parties can relitigate the scientific reliability matter again and again, because it's really about the trial court's discretion, even though 
if you think about it, a scientific technique should either be reliable or not in a global sense. If we applied your ideas to that problem, I think what you see is rules of precedent starting to apply to the admissibility of scientific techniques. So if there are many, many courts that arrive at a particular conclusion about a particular technique, then other courts really should heed what those other courts are doing and follow along the prevailing trend. I think that there certainly are parallels. If you think about it through the lens of precedent, I, the way that you've described it is the natural model of precedent, which is to say precedent that is merely persuasive. There is this epistemic deference, there's this accumulation of knowledge, and a number of courts can say, well, perhaps I don't have to reinvent the wheel. A number of my learned colleagues have examined this in great depth, and therefore I'm going to accord a certain amount of deference to the work that they've already done. Precedent gets problematic really only when a court at time two or some subsequent time looks at an initial determination and says, I think that's wrong, but I am bound to follow it anyway. And that's when the most difficult defenses of precedent become necessary. Now, on the preclusion side of things, I think that what you would be saying to, as a judge, to the litigant is, this has already been litigated so many times, and you simply are going to be prevented from challenging the findings of earlier courts. I actually don't even know whether they are correct or not, but it's been litigated so much that I'm simply not going to allow you to advance those arguments in my court. So it, it winds up being slightly different, but the level of bindingness of preclusion and, and precedent can get to a point where it shuts out people and prevents them from making these arguments. But the whole reason that you would do so is that background norm of epistemic deference. Even if in any individual case, somebody might be able to, to argue that an earlier precedent was incorrect. Final question for you. What are the next steps in this project? Are there further issues that you plan to develop uh, along these lines? Or perhaps are there areas that others who are interested in this area should think about pursuing? Absolutely. There's one that's probably a little less theoretical that I'm working on right now, which is how some of these ideas apply in the context of the raging debate about the propriety of nationwide injunctions. And nationwide injunctions are raising, in some ways, the, the converse problem, which is not how do you bind somebody to an adverse decision in which that person did not participate, but do you allow somebody to take advantage of what they regard as a good decision, a favorable decision, namely with respect to the government? And I think that there's a whole lot that one can say to cash this out. There are a number of scholars who have started to weigh in on this, who have uh, argued that there are either structural or constitutional problems with nationwide injunctions issued by a single district court judge. My working hypothesis is that there actually aren't any of those problems, drawing in large part on some of the theories that I'm developing in precedent and preclusion. But as I conclude in the precedent and preclusion paper, a lot of these questions are going to be pragmatic ones. And we should ask, how do we do this in a way that makes sense and that is fair, even if there aren't hard and fast structural constraints on this? Well, Ellen, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about this intersection between preclusion and precedent. Great having you on the show. Thanks very much, Ed. It's been a pleasure. The issues explored in Allen's paper, Preclusion and Precedent, 
are classically viewed to be creatures of civil procedure and fed courts. But to my mind, both preclusion and precedent are fundamental aspects of the proof process. When is it that we view factual issues to have already been resolved? Or when do we presume them to be resolved, subject to further review? Given my own biases, which typically favor accuracy over autonomy in the proof context, Allen's approach seems quite attractive, though I concede that it has the potential to be quite radical. For any factual issue of general import, it seems that precedential principles should apply. Whether a technique is sufficiently reliable, whether a particular plane crash was caused by negligence, even whether a drug causes a disease, these are all things for which there really should be only one answer. And because courts should view other courts as epistemic peers, the principle of epistemic deference suggests that we shouldn't relitigate general factual issues repeatedly. The current court should listen to the previous courts, and the more numerous and more consistent the previous courts, the more the current court should listen. Just because the current party didn't participate in those previous cases shouldn't really matter. After all, as Alan points out, we impose legal precedent on non-parties all the time. But note that this move to a precedent perspective cuts both ways. So even if the same two parties are trying to relitigate the same issue, perhaps there should be the possibility, however slim, of reopening a final judgment. The strong presumption is, of course, against it. But if there's new evidence or extraordinary circumstances, perhaps the usual preclusion rules should yield. Such flexibility would be useful in places like toxic tort litigation, where the evidence may change over time. Whatever your view of Allen's proposal, I hope that it has made you think more deeply about preclusion and precedent. I know that for me, I've been struggling with these ideas ever since I read his article. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace D. Pietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.